What happened on April 15, 1912? Who knows? The Titanic sank. I think I heard someone say that. That's right, the Titanic did sink. But it wasn't just the force of, for the force of crashing into an iceberg that sunk the Titanic. James Cameron, the director of the Titanic movie, the one that you fast forward to the, when they crash into the iceberg where all the action is, that's what I did anyway, he, he says this, it was also destroyed by a state of mind, arrogance. The word on the street at the time was that this ship was unsinkable. Someone even said God himself could not sink this ship. She was at the absolute cutting edge of technology. She boasted luxurious dining rooms, a fancy staircase, elevators, libraries, a squash court even. This is 1912, remember. This ship was glorious, but despite what she boasted, she didn't even complete her first journey across the Atlantic. Pride comes before the fall. It's in Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Any expression of human pride can disappear in the blink of an eye, can't it? Just like that. We saw it with the Titanic and we see it with Nineveh here in Nahum chapter 2. The Titanic was the great construction of its day. Nineveh was the great construction of its day. Look at it. Massive, huge, huge area, huge population. I think it had about 175,000 people or something like that in its heyday. It had a giant wall and it was, that wall was protecting a massive palace. Huge. And what's more, this place had a fearsome army to defend it. The idea that Nineveh could be in danger, the idea that Nineveh could be destroyed was ridiculous and unthinkable, as ridiculous and unthinkable as the Titanic sinking. But that doesn't stop God's prophet Nahum from announcing it will fall. This heartbeat of Assyrian life and culture, built on pride, built on arrogance, it'll be wiped off the map. But remember, this isn't just an ancient history lesson for us here this morning. As Russell mentioned earlier, in every age the prophets lift our eyes from narrowed earthly existence to something greater, to a glorious reality that's hope-filled and good. And Nahum shows us that there can't be a better future, there can't be a glorious reality without judgment, because God's path to what's great must deal with what's bad. Last week in chapter 1, we read Nahum, the poetic theologian. He showed us God's character behind judgment, the personal and the mighty God, the God who is good, the God who is just, the God who won't just stand by while the world that he loves and the people that he loves is trampled underfoot. Well, in chapter 2, we're reading Nahum, the poetic war correspondent, if chapter 1's the theology of judgment, chapter 2's the reality of judgment. Nahum takes us to the scene, but he doesn't just report on the facts. 
He predicts Nineveh's fall as if he were there. And by doing that, by writing this poetry for us, he helps us to feel like we're there as well. To almost smell, to almost see, to hear what unfolds. But there's nothing easy about what we see here, is there? To get a sense of God's judgment in all its horror, it's uncomfortable, it's hard hitting. The reality of judgment is awful, but we need to hear it. We have to hear it. Nahum is our servant, he's our servant today. The way that he captures the pouring out of God's wrath on Nineveh, the concrete, real, flesh and blood reality of judgment, it gives us a sense of the judgment to come. The judgment that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 13. Listen to what Jesus says. As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. There's a heaven and there's a hell. You're either in heaven or you're in hell. That's what we're confronted with today. This is where it gets real. But as we're confronted with the reality of God's judgment, let's not forget the good news of judgment. Because God's judgment means salvation. Look there at chapter 1, verse 15, the verse before we began the reading. Nahum sets his blow-by-blow description of Nineveh's fall in the context of God's salvation, his rescue of his people. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. God's purpose in judgment is always salvation for his people. In judgment, we see that God's mighty to save. It's God that rescues his people. It's God that rescues his people, not his people that rescue themselves. And for us, that means trusting the cross as God's work on our behalf to rescue us from sin and death. For Judah, that meant trusting that God would deal with their oppressors. Assyria, this proud and arrogant nation who was so cruel to them, who ruled them with terror. Nineveh's imminent fall for for Judah was good news. I said it last week, it meant no more going to bed at night wondering if you're going to wake up again in the morning. That's what it meant for them. And it's on this note that Nahum takes us to the scene in chapter 2. The Assyrians, who took pride in taking down cities, now they come face to face with an enemy who wants to do exactly the same thing to them. They want to give them some of their own medicine. The onslaught's about to begin, verse 1. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Guard, watch, brace, 
Marshall, it's a challenge. Throw everything into defending yourselves. War's coming. The enemy's on the move. You better be ready. And of course, in, verse, in the next verse, we see that God's coming against them to restore his people. It's a frightening proposition. God taking vengeance against you. When well, verse 3 and 4, we're taken inside the city. We're looking out now. And what do we see? The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. Spears are brandished. Chariots are storming through the streets. They look like flaming torches. They're darting about like lightning. It's the picture of an organised and mighty army, isn't it? There's a flurry of activity. They occupy every street on the outskirts of the city and they're moving closer and closer to the inner parts, to the inner suburbs. Well, in verse 5, the image shifts from the approaching attackers to the panicking Ninevites. Nahum paints a moving picture of fear. He summons her picked troops. I think it's talking about the king here. He summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. You can see it, can't you? You can hear it. You can feel it. This is like Berlin in its last days. The Russians are on the doorstep, the writing's on the wall, but Hitler still thinks he can win the war. He urges the king of Nineveh Bach's orders, he urges his soldiers to defend him. They stumble to their places, but they're too late. They've got nothing. The attacking forces gain entry, verse 6, as water floods in. The palace crumbles to the ground. The fate of this once great city is sealed. Many will be carried away into exile. That's what the Assyrians did to everyone else. Now the international policy that made them so famous and made them so feared by everyone around them, it's going to come back to bite them. It's justice. It's eye for an eye. It's tooth for a tooth. The punishment exactly fits the crime. You've got to remember, though, as we're seeing this, this event unfold in Nahum 2, that God is the one who's the orchestrator of it. God's not a pacifist. He's active in judgment. Sometimes hell is described as separation from God. It's kind of true. It's, it's separation from everything that is good, isn't it? But what makes judgment frightening is God himself, his presence, his inescapable presence with his face, with his face turned against, against you. The experience of hell in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Well, we've seen Nineveh. They've been sacked. The city's been taken. And in verse 8, the scene moves into the heart of the city itself. 
The Assyrians took pride in plundering their opponents, in taking everything from them. They boasted of chariots, commodities, livestock, garments, you name it, they took it and they wrote the things down and told everyone about them. Well, now the tables turn. It's their turn to be plundered. In verse 8, Nineveh is compared to a pool of water draining away. Every resident is wide-eyed with terror. And they flee for their lives, don't they? they? The call goes out to stop, but no one turns and looks back. There's no time for that. And they leave behind the enormous amount of wealth that they'd amassed at others' expense. Nothing is left at all. Verse 10, she is pillaged, plundered, stripped. It's a picture of total desolation, total devastation, total destruction. In the original language, there's actually alliteration here to ram that point home, which is hard to capture. We can't, it's hard to capture three words that say the same thing in English that start with the same letter. But maybe that's a good way of doing it. Desolation, devastation, destruction. Bang, bang, bang. Those who made a way of life by striking fear into others now know that same fear themselves. This is the experience of divine judgment. What does judgment look like? It looks like faces that are deathly pale. What does judgment feel like? It feels like hearts melting, knees buckling, bodies shaking. What does judgment sound like? It sounds like emotional cries of those in agony. God's judgment is flesh and blood reality. And there's a day coming when it will be experienced in all its fullness. The day when Jesus returns. And it will be awful. Yes, some of us will rise to salvation and we can rejoice. But others will rise to judgment and be punished. And I take it that even those of us who have our trust in Jesus who know we'll be taken safely through judgment, into salvation, into eternity with God. Even those of us who have nothing to fear ourselves in judgment, fear for those we love, don't we? Don't we fear that? Our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbours, The prospect of those we love facing judgment can almost be too much to bear. This is hard to preach, this stuff. But as a church, we have to hold on to this conviction, the conviction that Nahum confronts us with, that there's a heaven and a hell. We'll be tempted not to. We'll be tempted to shrink back but we have to hold on to it. Because as Russell reminded me this week as we were talking about this, it's with this conviction that people are led from hell to heaven. God's judgment is flesh and blood reality. That was the experience of Nineveh being taken, in being plundered, and finally, in being humbled. Proud and arrogant Nineveh, 
It called itself the lion's den. Called itself the lion's den. The ferocious lion would go out and smash this city and smash that city. And they'd bring back all the good stuff into the lion's den, this place called Nineveh, where the lioness and the cubs were. That's what they'd do. One Assyrian king boasted, like a lion I rage. There's all kinds of stuff that we have from archaeological discoveries that tell us what these people were like, as well as here in the Bible. See, for 200 years they ravaged people, the Assyrians, just like lions prowl their prey. But verse 11, where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young. Where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Where now? And then come the frightening words of verse 13. It's hard to imagine four more frightening words, and it's because of who they come from. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is a humbling of epic proportions, isn't it? And the Lord's the one behind it. You know when athletes win awards and they go up and they say how humbled they are? That's not being humbled. That's not being humbled at all. Being humbled is more like winning the award and then losing it because you've been exposed as a drug cheat. That's being humbled. The wild and ravaging lion is itself destroyed and ravaged. That's what it meant for Nineveh to be humbled. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. See, God opposes the proud. God is against the proud. Proud and arrogant humanity face his righteous anger. You see, it's quite possible to be opposed to God and live our lives in opposition to him for many years. We might enjoy success, we might enjoy conquest, wealth, power, prestige, whatever it might be. And as we're enjoying this success, if you like, What we might not know is that what we're effectively doing is storing up wrath for ourselves. That's what pride does, doesn't it? It blinds us to the truth. It prevents us from seeing things clearly. Tim Keller says, Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently kills you without you even knowing it. See, pride is spiritual suicide. It's on a collision course with God himself. And the collision between God and proud humanity has two possible crash sites. Either hell or the cross. Hell or the cross. Either we will pay for our sins in hell or Christ will pay for our sins on the cross. Quoting Proverbs, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 
that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to say, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in good time. See, there's good news for the humble. Good news for the humble. Good news for those who throw themselves on the mercy of God. God, in his grace and in his kindness, holds out hope for us who are proud and arrogant sinners. It pains me that there are some of you here, no doubt, that are opposed to God. I plead with you this morning. I plead with you. Not from a position of pride, not from a position above you or better than you or anything like that. But I plead with you to submit yourself to Jesus. Put your trust in Him today. Judgment Day is coming. God is slow to anger, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished as we saw in chapter 1. Do what the tax collector does in Luke chapter 18. The tax collector who cries out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you can rejoice in the words that Jesus says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I ended last week with the first verse of Rock of Ages. I'm going to end now with another verse. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. 